Hey, this is Patrick Macias, the author of Tokyo Scope, the Japanese cult film companion. And I'm Matt Alt, the author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. And this is our podcast, Pure Tokyo Scope, and this is our 22nd episode. Matt, where were you when you were 22? Wow, I was kind of like where this podcast is. I was living in my parents' basement, watching anime, surrounded by Godzilla toys and uh, die-cast robots. Where were you? I had moved to San Francisco. I was probably living in the Mission District, eating a lot of burritos and watching underground movies and going to Japantown and renting stacks of Yakuza movies and doing some writing. That sounds pretty good to me. Why did we start Adult Lives? We could have just kept doing that. Oh, well. But we did, and now we're here. So what's on the agenda for today? Well, we have news. We have a look back at a classic Japanese TV series, and then we have a live event report. So three things we have to get through. A three-stage combination rocket, a sort of Buck Rogers star stick ice cream. There's three different flavors in one bar. Is this what they meant by the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? To start with the news, where would we be without some corruption and some scandal? And it finally happened, Matt. The Tokyo Olympic mascots have been ensnared in a bribery scandal. Kawaii kickbacks. Who would have thunk it? You know, it's it's this story just keeps coming back and, and mutating in like weirder and weirder forms. It, it's the same guy who got arrested for taking bribes from like the Aoki Clothing Company and Kadokawa. And now it turns out he took bribes from the manufacturer and vendor of plush dolls that was going to be supplying, that did supply the Olympics with all of its cuddly, cuddly mascot characters. Oh, the humanity. All of its unsold merchandise. I mean, you can't go anywhere in Tokyo without seeing like janky plush mascots that no one wants, no one wanted. Years ago, many years ago, when the Olympics were still just a gleam in the mayor's eye, they, or governor, I should say, there was a, a kind of competition to decide what the next mascot would be. And there were all sorts of really awesome ideas. And one of them, which I was really hoping would make it, and it made it into the kind of like, you know, the finals was yokai based. It was like tanuki and like kitsune and stuff like that. It had some kind of like link to Japanese folklore and it was, they were cute and they were cool designs. But of course they got nixed for these totally generic, I don't even know what they are or what they're supposed to be. They're kind of these checkerboard pattern creature things. Every single aspect of the Olympics that could have veered in a kind of cool direction zigzagged into a not so cool one. Like there were so many interesting things they could have done with the opening ceremonies. And yes, you know, coronavirus and the fact they couldn't have any spectators in the stands obviously had an impact on that. But it's more than that. I don't know. It's just when you get this big, I think everybody's afraid to do anything kind of remotely interesting. And so everything gets kind of bland. So this guy, Haruyuki Takahashi, who's the former Olympic organizing committee executive, this guy was taking money from the Aoki suit company, publisher Katakawa, and also, yeah, uh, Sun Arrow Incorporated, who made the mascots. And he got about 8 million yen. Sun Arrow was apparently operated by one of Takahashi's golfing buddies. <laughs> if I, it's, it's not funny. It's not ha-ha funny, uh, I, but it is. No, but Caddyshack is funny. I think it still holds up after all these years. So wait, 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 was Rodney Dangerfield the one running Sun Arrow? I'd like to think so. The people talk about how clowns are scary, ventriloquist dummies are scary, but what about mascots? What about if the people in the suits were corrupt in, in taking bribes as well? I hope so. That would actually add yet another level of strangeness to this already insanely strange story. I mean, the dude's been arrested four times already. <laughs> 
on kickback charges. So I'm assuming there must be more in the works. And I, I kind of am, uh, hope and pray that, yes, next we find out the people in the suits are the ones who were paying bribes to be in the suits. Maybe they were bribing to get out of the suits. It can't be fun to be performing in those things in the middle of the summer Olympics. So we'll see who's next. Maybe Mr. Donut. Maybe Tony's Pizza is in on the take. Shakey's? Shakey's could never be part of this. They are too pure. They are too They are too full of justice to be involved in something as base as this. Food, folks, and fun, Matt. It's a recipe for corruption and scandal. And on that note, what's next? Well, also last week in the otaku front, Urusei Yatsura returned to television airwaves for the first time since the mid-1980s. The animated series Urusei Yatsura, also known by my personal favorite translation of the title, Those of Not Noxious Aliens, uh, was created by Rumiko Takahashi in 1979 and then spun out into a really, really popular comedy anime TV series, which then spun out into feature films. And, and it's been gone pretty much from the radar until last week where the new Urusei Yatsura series debuted on Japanese TV at a really great time slot. 1.45 in the morning, correct? <laughs> it's, it's when everybody's up watching anime. But actually, I'm shocked, Patrick. I thought Urusei Yatsura uh, debuted uh, a couple days ago. You mean it actually has a history? You mean there was actually actually an anime series before this? I'm I'm impressed. Yeah, uh, Rumiko Takahashi created Urusei Yatsura and Lum in 1979 in the manga. And um, yeah, it went on to become a big thing. I think a lot of people in Japan, it's one of those cultural touchstones. To me, it was always like one of the, there was kind of twin strands of, of anime when I was, and I'm just talking about as I saw this, you know, when I was a kid first exploring anime. This is you studying it, not living uh, exactly. it. I didn't live it like Japanese people did, of course. But like, it was part of like the girls thread of anime. Like you had things like Orange Road and like Maison Ikoku and Dirty Pair on one hand. And then, you know, all of the Mecha SF, you know, sci-fi robot stuff that I craved on the other. And I think there were some crossovers, like Dirty Pair was certainly a, a kind of crossover in that, in that arena. Urusei Yatsura, you know, I remember Viz actually put out an English version of it in the late 80s, I think. Graphic novelized kind of tanko bonds that they put out. Do you remember those? Oh, I certainly do because I worked in the warehouse at Viz doing shop by mail. And by far, by far, by far, Rumiko Takahashi's titles were keeping the lights on. And there was Ursa Yatsura, but Ranma, when I was working there in the late 90s, Ranma was the hot ticket. Isn't Inuyasha uh, Rumiko Takahashi as well? Yes, Inuyasha is part of the Rumiko Takahashi's Rumik world. That's what astronomers have identified it as. <laughs> and I, I hate to say this, but you know, I admire her as a manga artist, as a talent. I'm not a big fan. Me and Japanese comedy have a very complicated relationship. And, you know, I, I can watch I Dream of Genie or like The Brady Bunch or something like that. But the new show does look really bright and colorful. It looks like it has great animation. Well, it's it's they they actually did something interesting, it sounds like. The the intro is kind of set like the actual intro of the the theme song is set in the modern world, but the show itself is set in the seventies. Which you know I like. Why do you have to pick one? It's it's anime. It's it's fantasy. So and also something there was also something really interesting that happened, which is that on Twitter, uh, many many fans actually busted out their old VHS and Betamax decks to to record the show. Like they kind of wanted to get number one because it's on at one forty five in the morning, but number two because they wanted to kind of get into that old school mindset of how they originally consumed the show, which I thought was really cool. I saw people speculating that the reasons why the show is still set in the 70s is because if it were a true sequel, Lum would be in her 60s now, about the same age as the average Ursay Yatsura. Is that is that a that a cougar or is that like a tiger? She's like she's because she's wearing that tiger striped uh, bikini. But uh, Lum is eternal, Patrick. She's eternally young. She's eternal love. 
I, yeah, but actually, Rumiko, it's, it's interesting what you were saying about Rumiko Takahashi's work, because I, I totally agree. She's like an amazing artist. She's incredibly prolific. And I wonder if it's just like a guy girl thing, because I know people like even now, like I have friends and like their daughters are obsessed with Inuyasha. Like they just absolutely love it. So like, you know, Rumiko Takahashi's work is not only incredibly powerful, but it, it's, it kind of spans the generations. So she's like one of the greats. Oh, for sure. It, it's just interesting. It's never really, sp- I always tried to get into it. And like, I love the Urusei Yatsura movies, you know, like Beautiful Dreamer in particular. Everybody loves that. It's such a surrealist, you know, amazing uh, example of how, you know, you can play with anime and you don't have to be kind of stuck in any one story or form or anything like that it's 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 like it's i want to like it i want to like it more than i do i don't know yeah i mean i get the same feeling when i try to read like flowers in the attic i'm like okay hmm well uh maybe uh not for me but uh, yeah this is a thing so you know congratulations to ursa yatsu for coming back i think it is a really cool good looking show it's streaming globally on high dive so if you want to see it in the U.S., you can watch it that way. Or you can maybe um, trade tapes with your pen pal in Japan and get some Betamaxes in the mail. This is one time where I will endorse pirating. You know, if you can dub your Betamax tape and like trade it with somebody, it, absolutely, you should totally go with that. On that note, we're going to cut to a commercial and then it'll be time for our feature presentation. The year is 2999. Space War 3 has ended. The galaxy is once again enjoying a time of peace. Our solar system, with the Earth as its leader, is slowly rebuilding, attempting to forge new hope out of the ashes of devastation. Starfleet, the spearhead of Earth's defenses, is commanded here at the headquarters of EDF. Earth Defense Forces. An urgent call from Captain Carter of Pluto Base. Captain Carter? Open the channel. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Captain Carter. At star time, 35426, Starfleet Cruiser 1 from Pluto Base was attacked by laser torpedoes fired from an alien ship. No provocation, no warning, no survivors. Oh, no, I can't believe it. Plan of action? So let's get to know each other. Space Pilot Hagen, sir. Welcome. Space Pilot John Lee. Hope you like it here. And I'm Barry Hercules, Doctor. Okay, Matt, I have a confession to make. I'm completely obsessed with X-Bomber, the 1980 to 1981 Japanese puppet drama set in outer space. Why wouldn't you be obsessed with it? It's the greatest, it's it's the second greatest science fiction puppet drama ever made. After Team America? Some would say, some would say it's the first. I, you know, obviously, so X-Bomber, as you said, is a puppet drama that aired in Japan in 1980 to 1981. And it is obviously inspired in turns by the British Super Marionation series Thunderbirds and Star Wars. And also, as we now know, uh, because I was hired to translate all of the materials for this expo, or at least the, the essays that appear in the in the expo pamphlet, it was inspired by Japanese folklore, the uh, tale of the bamboo cutter from the ninth century. Who knew? But uh, so it's this it's this great sci-fi puppet drama that we unfortunately didn't get to see in the States, but it did air in England, did it not? It aired in the UK as Starfleet. 
and created a minor sensation there. Certainly more popular than it was in any other part of the world outside of Japan. It might even be more popular there than it was in Japan. In Japan, the show did not do very well. I, I read in your catalog notes that it got like a 3% viewing rating because it was up against some Super Sentai shows, and it even lost out to like a cooking show. Yeah, it's kind of brutal because, you know, and, and I really encourage people to check it out on YouTube. You can see episodes up there. It's also the episodes of, of Starfleet are up on Internet Archive. If you go to Internet Archive and type in Starfleet, you can literally watch the entire season dubbed in English there. The sets are beautiful. Like the amount of effort that went into making this series is off the charts. It is, it is wild how much time they spent, like the craftsmanship that went into it. So I think that more than the fact the show didn't do that well in the ratings is is what killed it. I don't think it's like replicable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, cinematographer Ryuji Kawasaki, who is uh, in the catalog there and you translated his notes, said every shot of this show was a struggle in some way. And when you watch it, I get the same feeling I do from not just like tokusatsu shows, but like a Stanley Kubrick movie, you know, like the level <laughs> yes. of like precision it must have taken to get the puppets to like all synchronize against a background. And I mean, if you're into special effects show, this is like an absolute masterpiece of Japanese special effects techniques. There's like miniatures, there's guys in suits, there's opticals. If you like things blowing up, there's a ton of pyro. And it's not just like a monster of the week, let's defeat the bad guy kind of show. So the creatively, it was Go Nagai, the creator of Mazinger Z and Devilman. He designed the characters and designed some of the mecha for the show. And the script, who Go Nagai handpicked this guy guy, Keisuke Fujikawa. He was a novelist and a screenwriter, and he had written a ton of space cruiser Yamato, including Be Forever Yamato, my favorite anime movie of all time. So it's a show that has like strong characterizations. It's very, very serialized. That's the most surprising thing about it is that the big die X, the like super robot of the show doesn't even show up until like five or six episodes. Yes. In. Yes. It's like a Dangard ace in that way. Like we have to build up to it. Like, you know, it's just, it's too much robot. And actually, you know, as much as I want to believe the robot is the center of the show, it's not like it, there's a lot of character development going on you know this journey through space uh kind of thing to kind of reclaim your homeland yeah there's three starship pilots there's a mysterious space princess called lamia who's kind of playing the the kaguya hime part from the tale of the bamboo cutter yes. there's an evil galactic empire and there's the edf the erectile dysfunction wait no the earth <laughs> defense forces it says in your catalog notes that they were consciously trying to outdo Thunderbirds. And I get a sense of some of these shots that they did. They definitely did. The models and stuff are huge in scale. They have this layer of like weathering and kit bash detail to them. It's just unbelievable they were doing this for like a weekly TV show, ostensibly for children. I think it's actually, it's more for like the cultural elite who can appreciate this sort of thing. Well, it's, you know, and it's funny you say that because Japan, like this, shows like this really play to Japan's cultural strengths. There's like this centuries old tradition of like, like no theater where people are wearing masks and there's like, you know, bunraku, which is puppet drama. And of course there's like tons and tons of Japanese craftsmanship and creating miniatures and things. So I kind of feel like when Thunderbirds dropped, like, you know, Japanese, Japanese people were like, oh shit, we can do this too. You know? And my only, my only regret is that more shows like this didn't come out. You know, I want to see more shows like X-Bomber. The people behind the camera, this was the first time they had ever worked on a puppet show. I mean, I mean a puppet drama. It's not a puppet show. Spine Spinal Tap and Puppet Show? Or is it Puppet Show and Spinal Tap? That's what it was. <laughs> 
But the director was a guy who had directed a ton of the original 1971 Common Rider. And these were people who had come from Toho Studios and had worked on that first wave of Godzilla movies with Eiji Tsuburaya. Right. They had worked at Daie on Daimajin and Gamera movies. And then they had kind of gone to Toei and worked on TV shows there like the Super Sentai series and Kamen Rider. And this was kind of their first time stepping out into this as kind of independence. This was not a big network show. This was like a small independent show put together by like mainly, was it Cosmo Productions? Cosmo Productions, who was, and Cosmo Productions was, even though in spite of its name, it wasn't really a production company. It was the company you went to to make miniatures and to kind of oversee just a special effects shots on bigger productions. That's what they were. And so this was the first time that like, basically the entire show is a special effects shot. So they ended up producing the entire show. The centerpiece of the show are these two foot tall rod puppets that you pretty much see in every shot. I guess after filming was completed, they were put into storage Eventually, this guy, Fuyuki Shinada, who's a sculptor and a modeler who also has worked on a bunch of Tokusatsu shows, he didn't work on the original X-Bomber, though. He was just kind of a fan. He currently works at Tsuburaya on some Ultraman stuff. So Fuyuki Shinada had access to these puppets, and they were all kind of like in various states of decomposition, because I guess the skin was done in latex. Not only were they in like decomposition, but they'd literally, many of them had actually literally been blown up, and they, they displayed some of the outfits with, look like they have bullet holes through them from the pyrotechnics at the exposition. So how did this expo come to be? Because you got involved with it. I was not, I was not like an organizer or involved in any deep way at all. I just, I got a call out of the blue about two months ago from uh, a gentleman who I know who is like, he's like the, he's like the number one historian of, of Japanese toy culture here. He's written numerous books. His name is Koji Igarashi. He wrote uh, in the late nineties, he wrote the first guidebook to Chogokin and like Popinika that all of the collectors used. And since then he's written just tons of books books on Gundam and Gunpla and like Takara and and like all of their toy lines. And he's a regular contributor to Figure O. And he was, I guess, tasked with writing all of the materials for this in, in Japanese. And then I got this kind of call email from him out of the blue saying, hey, can you translate the essays that are appearing in, in the guidebook that is going to be sold at the show? And so I just, I translated those. That, that's all That's all I did. And, but it was really eye-opening for me. I didn't know all of the stuff that we're talking about here until, because there's not a ton of material on X-Bomber available. Like you said, the show kind of came and went. You know, Toy Freaks remember it because Takatoku, the same company who produced all of the Macross Valkyrie and like Orgus uh, toys, they were the sponsor and made all of the really cool products for the series. So toy collectors know that. And of course, Tokusatsu fans remember it. You know, puppet drama fans remember it. So it is fondly remembered, but there wasn't a lot of material produced for it. So this is my first time learning about kind of the, the, the faces behind the scenes. So the, the story of how the event came together, as far as I understand it, from translating these materials is that Fuyuki Shinada, he spent 20 years restoring and reconstructing these these puppets and props just because he loved the show so much. And he had really been dreaming of some way to make this happen as a as a show. He wanted to, to put them on display, obviously, because it's just, you know, he, he wants his handiwork to be seen and he, he wants the, you know, other people, other fans to be able to appreciate it. And a year or two back, he linked up with Max Watanabe, who is the professional modeler. I first knew Max's work from like Hobby Japan in the 80s and 90s. He's just like a white hot like professional modeler. He runs Max Factory, which is a producer of like resin kits, garage kits, things like that. And they're also involved with the Good Smile Company, which is a big maker and distributor of like uh, figures, you know, modern day kind of anime, moe figure kind of stuff. So Max Watanabe's 
company, I guess, footed the bill for this, and they they ran the show for one week, one week only, in Akihabara, in this space in Akihabara. And uh, you know, you and I got to go see it. It was on, on the next to last day. Unfortunately, it uh, it's it's over. You can't go see it now. But all of the people involved were saying, man, you know, we, we want to do this again. Uh, we hope that we can spin this off into a Blu-ray release of, of X-Bomber, which is what I was seeing talk of on Twitter. And maybe, who knows, maybe if the Blu-ray box actually comes out or they stream it or something, uh, that'll be an excuse to do this again. Because the puppets and props and all, everything are there. They're all un- owned and under the control of one person. So it would be pretty easy to, to do this again. There are 20 restored puppets in all, plus some old miniatures that have been reconstructed and some new miniatures that they kind of had to build from scratch because you can't have an X-Bomber exhibition without the X-Bomber. Yes, the ship. And it was an amazing sight to see these things up close and personal. It's a show I did not grow up with, but about 10 years ago, I bought the DVD box set and you know became like a huge, huge X-Bomber fan. It was a wonderful experience to see beautiful and alluring Princess Lamia in person, to see Barry Hercules and uh, Shiro, Ginga, and all, all those heroes there. Because they're they're physical objects, you know, and they're the same physical objects that were on screen, it's almost like going to like a, you know, an autograph, you know, thing, event at a, at a convention or something, or seeing the stars. It, it was, it's really, it was a really very different experience from going to, for instance, like an anime-related event where it's, where it's a bunch of cells and like, you know, sketches on the wall. And those are cool too. Those are great too. But like the, the X-Bomber exposition was a a way to you know really get up close and personal with the stuff that had been used to make this classic show and uh, it's it's interesting you bought your box set I I was actually given my X bomber box set about five years back by Haraguchi San uh, the director of Death Kappa and and Mika Droid and all of that he's just like hey I got too many DVD sets you want this and, and gave me one and that was my first you know, entry into watching the series. I I had known about it, but never actually seen it. And I highly recommend it. If you like this podcast, you're probably going to like X-Bomber slash Starfleet. And you're probably even more going to like the theme song by Brian May and Friends. So this isn't in Bohemian Rhapsody, but it turns out the guitarist for Queen, Brian May, actually recorded a cover of the ending theme of the Starfleet TV show. My little boy, Jimmy, as he was at the time, he's about 40-odd now, (laughs) uh, was very into this amazing Japanese science fiction series called Starfleet. And it had a signature tune, which was the Starfleet tune, written by Paul Bliss. And Jimmy loved it. And I used to get up with him, I think like six o'clock in the morning every Saturday to see this program. And it became a big part of our lives. And I thought, I'd love to play that tune. That would be a great basis for me to get these guys together and play. So he called some of his friends, including Eddie Van Halen, and they recorded this four-track EP that includes their awesome cover of the Starfleet theme. It's definitely like kind of in the mold of the Flash Gordon soundtrack with these like big multi-part harmonies right, and stuff yeah. like that. And if you're really only going to check out one tiny piece of Starfleet X Bomber ephemera, I highly recommend the music video for the Starfleet theme by Brian May and Friends because it's a collage, kind of greatest hits of special effects from the show. You have Brian May's kind of big hair, kind of a disembodied Zardoz head, and he's singing. It has all the power of You've Got the Touch by Stan Bush. It's it's a great theme song. And one of the, you know, I, I love the Japanese X-Bomber theme song. That is really cool, too. 
A Japanese rock band called Bow Wow did the opening and ending theme in a lot of the incidental music for X-Bomber in Japan. It is a really, really great score. It's on YouTube, and it's got like fanfares, military marches, evil galactic empire themes, all done like with a rock band, and there's some symphonic stuff in there too. It's a cornucopia of musical excellence for X-Bomber. And now we take you to our live report from the 2022 X-Bomber event in Akihabara. Wow. Drunk and on the streets of Akihabara. This feels like the before times. Here we go again. The tourists are even back, Patrick. Is this real or do I dream? How to describe the sights, the smells of what we're experiencing uh, right now? The funk of 40,000 years so or something we're, like that? We are on our way to the X-Bomber Expo. 2022, <laughs> implying that there will be one <laughs> next year as well, although I doubt it. This is the first ever X-Bomber event, according to the uh, the liner notes. How would we localize this? The If it's the X-Bomber Expo, it's the Starfleet Freakout? Is that what we're going to call this? We're gonna, we should go in there and demand that everything be referred to only by its British Starfleet names. Hi, I'm Barry Hercules. Starfleet, Starfleet. I think we want to go to the left. Let's go to the left. This way? Go left, yes. Okay. Follow all the X-Bomber fans. There should be a mob of thousands of people out front. That's how we'll know we're in the right place. All I know is that we're on Electric Avenue, and then I'll take you higher. This is wait, look, there it is. There it is. There's Holy the X shit, we gotta take photos. The X oh my God. Expo. There's like flowers from Dynamic Pro and Figure O. Out in the street, look. there is violence. Look at this. Look at this violence. Okay, we're we're in front of the X bomber. This is this is this is this is just too good to be true. Okay, I have to figure out how to explain to them who I am. Do you know who I am? I'm Wait, not you have to take reservations? No, no. Oh, no. Please. I translated all of the materials for this, so I have a free ticket in. Plebes like you, unfortunately, have to pay. Okay, wait, picture, picture. So, we're at the X-Bomber Expo. Because we probably can't scream like we normally do inside, let's talk a little bit about this. It is an exposition devoted to the show. It's not a competition, it's an exhibition. It's <laughs> an X-Bomber. And I didn't know this was happening until about a month and a half ago, I was asked to translate a bunch of material for the catalog that's here. And then that's when I learned of it. And a gentleman acquired the puppets and over the course of 20 years restored them. And so this exposition, which is the first of its kind, Patrick. There's never been an X-Bomber event until now. Been. So there's all this pent up demand that's been unleashed on Akihabara today. And I can already tell from the fact there's nobody lined up outside that this is going to be our Okay, kind no, of but there's a challenge because you have to get past the door. You have to say, don't you know who I am? Yes. Let's, let's try this. I'm the translator. Let's try this. Okay. <laughs> okay, so wait, let's describe this. There's, it's a small exhibition. It's like a showroom. a tiny showroom. It looks like a Bandai Tamashii Nations. But literally everybody's standing around watching X-Bomber on TV. Like little kids. This is no great. one's even looking at the puppets. We should go before people start looking at the puppets. Okay, here's the puppets. Holy shit. So we're standing in front There's of the Bloody puppets. There's Bloody Mary. So these puppets have been really exquisitely restored. They're very large in size. I would say that they're about... I heard 60 cm. Yeah, two, two feet tall, I would say. Two feet tall. And they're just absolutely beautiful. Oh my god. So Matt, I'm standing in front of Barry Hercules. Everybody's quiet. It's like it's Halloween. I know we're ruining the the, the mood here, but it's like it, it, this is like a, a church. If your religion is X bomber, 
and <laughs> like, it's such a labor of love, it's crazy. Somehow I don't think the X-Bomber Expo is going to be making it to America anytime <laughs> soon. Maybe London, maybe someone Maybe London because it, it was because, shown uh, in the, it was shown as Starfleet. Starfleet. So what are so these, the heads? These are the plaster heads that I guess they kept re because they kept blowing oh, shit Oh, like the plaster up. casters, right? Isn't that what they were called? The groupies? Who, uh, the Cynthia plaster caster? So here's all the X-Bomber toys, and these are actually my friend Yako, who's on Twitter and many other places. This is his collection of toys and models. See? The Brian May and Friends Starfleet record? The Japanese version of the Brian May and Friends the Starfleet project. Big Die X Jumbo by Takatoku with the chromed X instead of the What's yellow. What's the like Happy Meal size? Ha the Happy Meal thing is the die box, the big die box. I don't know what's in there. We're going to have to ask him. It's pretty awesome, though. It's like a cardboard box of, of Big Die X, the robot's head. So this is all of the original painted art. Like promotional stuff that you would see in yes. like Terabee magazine. And back in time, there were no computers, which meant life was, was, was boring. And you had to paint these things by hand. And these are just absolutely stunning. The reds are so red. I feel the greens, like so green. I feel like I've dropped some reds. OK, Matt, I'm actually going to throw some uh, tomato soup on this picture of the Die X to protest oil, and I'm gonna glue my hand to the wall, so just, just you can take okay, a picture I, I mean, of that. I'll take a picture of that so we can put it on the internet. <laughs> so we've basically seen everything now. I wouldn't say this is a big exhibition, but it is, it is quite- It's complete. It's dense. It's dense. It's like behind the scenes photos. Well, I just love that events like this are happening. Here's them going to NASA, the Dryden Flight Research Center, I guess, to take pictures of engines and stuff. This is the trip to NASA. Where they learned about how to make X-Bomber. X-Bomber was a documentary shot in real time. So they had to research it at NASA. Is that Gona Guy? Gona, so. Yeah, it is Gona Guy. There he is. Master Go. Yeah. Gona Guy visited Dryden Flight Center to get information for this work. They to fake the moon landing? It really was Gona Guy. He's the one who landed on the moon. We're the only non-Japanese people here. We're literally probably the only non-Japanese. I thought they let the tourists back in just to come to the expo. I, that's what I thought. I thought they timed it for that. There's always like one guy standing in front of Lamia, like really awkwardly. Like it's the one puppet everyone wants to uh, hang so, out with. Here's my, why was X Bomber never shown in the U.S.? I guess we never really had puppet like show, like the Brits did. Well, because Star Trek would confuse people with Starfleet. Starfleet Academy? Well, they didn't have to call it that. They could have called it something else. Starfleet, Starfleet. Wow, I just, so one gentleman spent 20 years in a cave restoring all of these puppets. And if there's any better definition of Japanese craftsmanship, I don't know what it is. And it wasn't Tomo Haraguchi. Well, I There's love, other people restoring old classic tokusatsu props. I love how even the, the blueprints have like flame like burns into them for like because they're constantly using pyrotechnics. Blowing stuff up. Yeah, like when you go to uh, the military museum here, the Yushikan, and they have like kamikaze flags like stained with yes. blood, they look exactly like that. So each one of the little name tags on these two foot tall dolls that we're looking at has like the description of what was like survived this the eight, 1980 and like what he had to build oh. with. And it also says bust waist hips. Yes, exactly. So all of this work was done by a guy named Fuyuki Shinada and he did just an absolute amazing job restoring these props. Props to him, Patrick. Yeah. 
let's go around again. Yeah. We, do, we have to keep just going we around, and, around just, and, just, and just keep watching X-Bomber. I love how like the most of the people who come here just stand in awe at the screen of, of X-Bomber playing and over and over again. And then they go look at Lamia. Yes. Which is great. I think a lot of people had a little crush on Lamia back in the day. Is she your waifu now? Oh, no, Hiroko's your waifu. No, Hiroko's my waifu. I was surprised no one showed up at this in cosplay. Like in a big silver helmet with the word Shiro written on it and red lipstick. I think people are just coming in here to watch TV for free. <laughs> We're homeless people. Like television's like a new invention. You have to stand in front of uh, the department store window. I don't want to leave. Uh, we don't have to leave. <laughs> now that we have these free tickets, we can come and go as many times as we want. Can you scalp them out front? <laughs> tickets, tickets. Front row seats. Lids. We have to stand in front of the TV and go, hey, you guys watching X-Bomber? How do you feel about X-Bomber? It's like a bunch of real deal talk we're coming in hard. So average age, average age, 50 something? No, lining up to get in. Is there gonna be like a fist fight? Is there a fist fight to get in at the, at the front? How much was general admission? 2,000 yen ahead. So each and every one of these people watched X-Bomber in its entirety, <laughs> in 1980, and probably every year since on DVD. So, what do you think, Patrick? That was amazing. That was awesome. I didn't want to leave the room, but uh, I think some part of me will always remain at the X Bomber Expo. I am so, I've said it, I said it probably five times in, in the field, but I am so happy events like this happen in, in and around Tokyo. And I'm so happy that they're happening again, you know, because they were kind of on hiatus for so long with the pandemic and stuff. Yeah. And what you told me is that we were missing out while we were at the X-Bomber event. There was a separate Zabungle 40th anniversary event happening yes. in Saitama. We could only yes. be in two places at once. It was like a battle of the X's, like X-Bomber or Zabungle. You know, you have to ask, which X are you? This is like Sophie's choice, Matt. I can't make that decision. I'm sad. I would have loved to have gone and seen the Zabungle. Bungle Expo, and it's so fitting that it's in Saitama, which is kind of like the déclassé sort of outside. No offense to Saitama ins, I, I actually really like Saitama, but uh, that's that's the image among uh, Tokyoites. And uh, apparently, there were a lot of really cool built-up model kits and stuff on display for that. But see, this stuff happens here. Like these kind of fan events happen here. That's why I love living in Japan. You can go check them out. So what we need now is a message from Space Expo. I'm I'm putting my fist down and saying, "Give me that. Give me an all." message from space event but in the meantime we have to convince you to come back next week and listen to our show hopefully we don't have to convince you too much because we're doing a great job and you like us but in the meantime if you can continue to support us by mentioning us on social media telling your friends about it uh shooting off fireworks in the middle of the night and telling everyone to listen to us that would be great dial 1-900 pure tokyo scope and kick them nasty thoughts in the meantime we'll be back next week thanks so much for listening <laughs> see you next time
Good morning. If you work nights the way I do, you miss a lot of great TV shows, but I don't miss them anymore, thanks to Sony's Betamax deck, which hooks up to any TV set. While I am out, Betamax is automatically videotaping my favorite show for me to play back when I get home. And now I'm going to watch it. Sony Betamax, available at Crazy Eddie's. Blah, blah, blah.